everyone. I'd like to thank you for joining us on our episode of Fundraising Focus. Uh, this is a series of conversations that we have with industry participants about the fundraising environment relating to open-end and closed-end funds. My name is Joe Morrissey. I'm a partner in Seward & Kissel's investment management group focused on fund formation. And today I'm joined by Hussein Khalifa, founding partner of the global private equity placement agent, Envision Private Equity Advisors. So afternoon, Joe. to jump right in, uh, maybe if you could just give uh, us a brief background of yourself and your firm, and then we can get right into our conversation. Sure, uh, Envision is one of the uh, world's sort of leading advisory firms focusing on raising capital for non-public market alternatives. So this includes private equity, real assets, credit, as well as direct transactions in both the developing and emerging markets, with the core of our business being in buyouts and growth capital. We've been in business for a little bit over 20 years as an independent firm. And prior to that, my partner, our CEO, Munir Musken, as he's known, was one of the original handful of individuals who were there when the PE placement business was invented by Jerry Green at Merrill Lynch almost 35 years ago. He ran their international business out of London, which is where we all started. And I met him shortly uh, after that as an LP working for a family office in Europe where I was responsible for alternatives. Today, we're about 40 professionals based across three principal offices in New York, where I'm located, London, which was our original headquarters, and Hong Kong, where uh, Moose is currently based. And since our founding, we've worked with over 200 funds, uh, representing slightly more than $190 billion uh, of uh, capital. Great, thank you for that introduction. Uh, so you guys obviously have a broad view of the various types of illiquid strategies out there. Uh, one of the things I think would be interesting for our listeners in terms of the different segments of the market are what are the differences that you're seeing across the different types of illiquid strategies you guys work with? Yeah, sure. So there are definitely some themes out there, but you know, we have to remind ourselves that the map is not the territory in the sense that we have to recognize that what we at Envision see and experience is not indicative of the market as a whole. And then the overall market data, the market reality doesn't necessarily reflect where we should or where we can be spending our time and energy. You know, we see headlines uh, with record fundraising numbers in the US at least, uh, but that hides a lot of the nuance. So everybody talks of a bifurcated fundraising market. And while that has actually been the case for several years now, it has been more pr pronounced since the pandemic with established groups raising record funds and benefiting at the expense of newer or smaller groups. People uh, took comfort in the familiar and new groups really have to be additive or um, outliers in terms of incredibly good performance. And, and this applies across all sub-asset classes where limited prior engagement with newer managers sort of created a a hiatus in fund closes last year uh, for several GPs that lasted from you know, approximately March through the fourth quarter. You know, nevertheless, things picked up as LPs got over initial market fears 
and a continued robust public market and strong investment and exit activity provided tailwinds. Now, a core part of our business is in the middle market and almost all of our clients had seeded portfolios uh, by the time we had our final close. Uh, they had typically made early investments, often as a result of the patent and fundraising, which ended up providing momentum after a quarter or two of having to demonstrate that they hadn't overpaid for the assets in question. Co-investment was a significant catalyst for many LPs, although this was sort of a continuation and deepening of an existing trend as opposed to something that was specifically COVID related. Now, I would say by and large, generalist funds are very difficult to raise if you're looking to attract a new relationship. If they're an existing uh, GP in your portfolio uh, and they've done well, uh, LPs will certainly re-up. But today people are looking for something that is either gives you exposure to um, an area where you don't have sufficient uh, exposure, um, or you want something that is specialized where you believe the team can deliver outsized returns. Technology has obviously been a big theme. We've seen valuations, electivity echoing that. But then today, technology underpins everything, you know, whether it's um, financial services, whether it's healthcare, whether it's traditional tech VC investing, uh, even in industrialized um, in industrial investments, we see uh, digitization and technology enabling services as a key driver. Uh, on the pure VC front, we've seen a lot of activity in terms of fundraising at the company level. Fund fundraising has been a little bit different in the sense that, yes, the established funds have performed incredibly well and have been able to uh, raise successor funds. But we've also seen a lot of non-traditional entrance into the market there. So family offices, particularly the large billionaire family offices have been incredibly active in this space. We've seen private equity sleeves at several of the large hedge funds and also uh, a great deal of corporate investing uh, straight into this space. Um, other areas that continue to attract interest in capital, uh, I would say uh, ESG focused funds have probably now for the first time really become institutionalized with interest coming from around the globe. There are obviously a large number of players, uh, ones that have long established track records of few and far between, but we're beginning to see a lot of serious interest from almost all uh, institutional uh, investors. Um, another area that we traditionally have been less active in, but which we did spend some time analyzing last year has been in the credit space. You know, low interest rates, high yield spreads coupled with uh, strong economic data and equity markets has generated a lot of interest among investors. From our perspective, however, we felt that the greatest demand was coming not from traditional alternative investors, which is our universe of LP, so to speak, 
but from folks who might have previously gotten this exposure through public markets and were willing to trade liquidity for returns. Moreover, I think we saw the continued theme that those GPs with established reputations, the largest players, would be able to continue ballooning AUM with less scope for newer or specialist players. Besides, with all the money going uh, into this space, returns would inevitably get compressed. I think you have to remember that this is an asset class that has quadrupled their AUM over the course of the last decade. Uh, distress funds generated a lot of interest and they were, I think, the single biggest class of credit strategies that with cheap stimulus money flooding in, we felt that that window of opportunity was short-lived and we did see it close fairly quickly despite the capital being raised. And I think the verdict is out as to how well those firms um, are going to do uh, in the current environment. Interesting. As a follow-up to that, we certainly saw last year a lot of managers scrambling to launch new products and take advantage of the perceived dislocation. Uh, in terms of the need to move quickly, how have you seen your LP clients adapt to that? Are they pre-screening managers or other wise taking steps to deploy capital more quickly when opportunities present themselves? You know, I actually think people were, there was a great deal of discipline being shown in the market. So there was that period in March where people wanted to hold off for a little while to see what was going to happen. They were worried that there was going to be a repeat of the global financial crisis or something that manifested itself in the same way. I think when they saw that wasn't the case, they still moved cautiously, uh, partly because valuations were still high. The public markets didn't really present a dip for people to go in and private equity wow. is a classic class. I think they wanted to make sure that maybe early investments that had been done continued to prove out the investment thesis. The one challenge I think a lot of folks had was how to be able to conduct their diligence and review newer managers that they didn't know as well. Because again, we saw a lot of money going to folks that they knew well. We even saw people decline funds and then go back and revisit those funds on the basis that at least they knew them well um, and they were more inclined to take a second look at them than go further down the track with newer managers. That, now, that was at the beginning of the pandemic. Things soon changed as they got more comfortable with using technologies such as Zoom and uh, other remote uh, uh, diligence processes uh, that would vary from geography to geography. In, in, in Europe, um, I think at the beginning there were some concerns about privacy, data protection, and how those technologies could be used. That didn't last very long, and I, and I think they, they were settled uh, quite well and, and people moved quickly. Uh, and in Asia, there was, I think, a little bit more reticence, particularly as a certain generation needed to get comfortable with the, with the technology being used. But we quickly saw people making up for lost time, as it were, by the end of uh, 2020. And I think that really is what accounts for the record fundraising in the first quarter of this year. A lot of it was catch up and, and, and funds that went through a, a slow period in their fundraising ended up being oversubscribed uh, despite that delay. 
Envision is obviously a global firm and you guys handle fundraisings across all different markets. Uh, you alluded earlier to some of the fundraising numbers in North America. Could you perhaps elaborate on what you're seeing in the rest of the world? Uh, how are the global numbers looking? Uh, and is the U.S. similar or, or dissimilar to what you're seeing abroad? You know, the, the numbers, I think, were strong globally. Uh, maybe not to the same extent as things were here for the simple reason that we saw a lot more local investment in the sense that people tended to favor their own geographies. And that was partly due to travel. So US investors ended up investing much more domestically. Some of it was, I think, a holdover from the prior administration where there was a lot more inward looking investment. Um, uh, GPs in Europe were worried about coming to the States or attracting too much US capital because they felt that their uh, might be, uh, you know, negative sentiments. But I, I think it really was the lack of global travel influenced that. So that if um, a lot of the European managers that traditionally would come over here ended up not doing so, uh, we still saw a lot of capital moving across, but not to the same degree as in prior years. You know, an interesting um, a data point was that at the start of 2020, people thought that it would be a record year for European fundraising based on the funds that were launching already in market. And, and while they still, um, you know, uh, overall levels were extremely impressive, we, we didn't quite cross that threshold. And I think when you look at Asia, um, it's a combination of two factors. One, again, the lack of, um, I think maybe three factors, the lack of travel influenced some of the uh, newer generation of managers. Um, there was a lack of large cap pan-Asian managers who traditionally raise a lot of their capital globally uh, coming to market in, in 2020. So I, I, I would say when, when it comes to Asia, we were really handicapped again by the lack of travel uh, by some of the newer managers and, and the fact that there were just fewer of the larger pan-Asian managers that rely a lot on non-Asian capital sources, primarily the US public funds and some of the sovereign funds uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere. So a couple of times during the conversation, you've alluded to the fact that particularly during the pandemic, established managers that are known quantities to some of the LPs have been successful in raising money, while new managers are perhaps facing a bit more of a challenge. In a recent pitch book piece, your CEO commented on how some LPs were looking to switch their rules and pivot to consider emerging managers with less of a track record. In, in that regard, what are you hearing from LPs in terms of their willingness to look at new managers? No, so that was certainly the case with a lot of LPs. They, 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 they wanted to make sure that there was a verifiable and analyzable track record. So typically you have to go back at least three funds. I think certain investors today, particularly some of the Asian institutional investors still have that mindset. Some of the Latin American investors still have that mindset, primarily because they are, those are newer programs than some of the US and 
uh, European uh, uh, programs. But today, I think people are looking at where the best returns can be generated. And I think historically, the first generation of funds have had hungrier managers that are willing to take certain risks as opposed to live off the management fee income. Uh, the only way they can really be rich is if they uh, deliver returns and, and get a lot of carry. And I think that's now recognized by more and more LPs who uh, are willing to do the hard work and look at the track record of the team members from their prior firms. Uh, I also think it's important um, for many L LPs to develop strong relationships with managers early in their lives so that they can be preferred co-investment partners and so they can be meaningful LPs for them going forward as opposed to you know, just one of another 150 investments. So looking out over the next couple of years, do you think this move to looking at perhaps younger managers earlier in their development will change your business? Uh, you know, what does that look like in terms of the resources you devote to looking at managers? So you, we've always been involved with emerging managers. And I, you know, I think really two reasons. One goes back to Moose's experience at Merrill Lynch, where he helped create the first generation of funds. And many of the multi-billion dollar household names today were originally, um, were, were originally teams within family offices or they were embedded at pension funds or within financial institutions that he helped create them. Also, he always loved working with the next generation of managers, people who were a little bit scrappier, who felt that they really needed to work hard to generate those returns. So, so that was part of our DNA when we started. And then when we opened up our US office about 18, 19 years ago, by default, we had to focus on that segment because it was frankly difficult competing with the large investment banks that had very, very large teams. And, you know, we would pitch them a more customized fundraising approach and the managers often love that. But if we walked out of the room and then one of the bank teams walked in with 15 sales guys, it would sometimes give them, you know, second thoughts. So we really had to prove ourselves with spinouts. And I had been an LP and I had generated some of the best returns in our portfolio from newer groups. And I was happy doing that as were my colleagues. And many of the firms we work with today who have several billion under management originally started as first time funds with us or funds that were going through some sort of internal restructuring in terms of generational change or new ownership. We're, it looks like we're running out of time. So I'll just follow up with a couple of last questions. Um, I think firstly, you know, we obviously work with a lot of new PE managers. So I think our clients would be interested in hearing maybe from a high level, what your advice would be for uh, emerging managers to put their best foot forward as they go about the fundraising process. Yeah, so I, I think a couple of things um, need to be borne in mind. One is that today people expect, LPs expect you to have most of your team in place from the beginning, right? I, I remember going back, you know, 20, 30 years, or 
uh, ago when, when you had folks that had a lot of outlines of people who were going to join after the first close or, or, or join in the next year today. People want you to have thought out what your business is going to look like five years ahead of time. And that means not only having investment professionals that can start analyzing deals, executing deals immediately, partly also to offset the, the, the J curve. Um, so you, you won't be committing to a new group and then it takes them a year and a half to get up to speed before the first dollar goes out the door. So they want to see that you have the investment team in place. They want to also make sure that you have your infrastructure in place in terms of your controller, uh, in terms of your back office, people that are now deemed critical uh, to uh, those investment processes and, and running your business. I think attribution is important and you can look at this in different ways. So when you come and are pitching to a, um, a new investor, they are obviously gonna to want to have a look at the track record. And it, in, in many cases, you're not able to give them a fully baked track record of what you did at your prior firm and say, listen, this is me. But you have to be able to at least provide enough information that they can connect the dots. And, and do so in a way that is not going to upset your prior employer or contravene any of the agreements that you have in place with them. And uh, the best way to do that is to make sure that you can demonstrate that you've added value in this process and you have folks either on the management teams or people that bought the company from you or advisors that are willing to essentially verify that track record of yours. Well, that's, that's all very helpful advice. I think, you know, we, that's one of the things when a, a new client comes to us that we, you know, we, we struggle with greatly in terms of what they can and can't do for that. Um, you know, I would say, sorry, Joe. So one other, one other point um, that I would add is that it is important to have, I think, a live pipeline of deals uh, ready to go because it's, it's hard to, to come up today with a, with a blank piece of paper and say, look, I'm interested in, in raising a blind pool fund. Give me the money and I will go out and find deals. They are expecting you to be able to deploy capital quickly and more importantly, to have deals that fit your investment thesis that really validate what you're setting out to prove uh, able to be executed on immediately. That's great. Thank you, Huss, for your time. I really appreciate it, your insights, and I'm sure our listeners will find this very helpful as well. Stay tuned for future episodes of Seward and Kissel's Fundraising Focus. 